OCT angiography is a new kid on the block when it comes to imaging the retina, but are you using it in your clinic? I'm Rebecca Hepp, Editor-in-Chief of Retina Today, and you are listening to New Retina Radio, brought to you by Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Today, I'm sitting down with a panel of experts to talk about the utility of OCTA in the retina clinic. I'm joined by our moderators, Drs. Cynthia Toth and Amani Fazi. Cindy, Amani, welcome. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for the introduction. It's great to be here with this panel. I'm Cindy Toth. I'm a um, professor of ophthalmology and biomedical engineering at Duke. And I've been working in OCT since the early 1990s and am excited that we're, um, Amani, that we're working together today to address one of the, one of the newest areas of uh, OCT imaging, OCT angiography. Thank you, Cindy. Uh, I'm Amani I work at Northwestern University, and I'm a retina specialist here. I've been using OCTA since um, it started being applied to retina, and I'm excited to see what all my esteemed colleagues think about this tool and how they use it in their clinic. And now let me introduce our panelists. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Rosenfeld. Bill? Hi, I'm Phil Rosenfeld. I'm a retina specialist at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. I'm delighted to be here and share my thoughts on OCT angiography. Most of my experience has been limited to using Carl Zeiss Meditech spectral domain and swept source OCTA instruments. And I've had a longstanding research and consulting relationship with Carl Zeiss Meditech since the early 2000s. Yeah, thank, first of all, thanks very much, uh, Cindy Amani, uh, for the opportunity to participate on this panel. Looking forward to this discussion with you uh, both and Phil and Nadia. So I'm Vasad. I'm a retina specialist and professor of ophthalmology at UCLA and the Doheny Eye Institute. And I've been involved with OCT imaging for many years and OCT angiography uh, more recently. So really, again, looking forward to this discussion. Hi, I'm Nadia Wahid. I'm a professor of ophthalmology at the Tufts University Medical School and director of the OCTA Research Lab at the Tufts Medical Center in Boston. And delighted to be here today with uh, Phil, Voss, Uamani, uh, and uh, Cindy. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Um, OCTA, it's as we've talked about, it's the new kid on the block. So although OCT has been around again since the late 1980s, applied in ophthalmology um, in the mid-1990s, OCTA has only been with us since mid um, the mid-2000s onward. And although it's being applied clinically, there's been a lot of debate as to whether we have reproducible, standardized imaging of large or small vessels. And if a vessel isn't there, do we know it's a problem with the imaging system or is it indeed missing? So let's start with a big picture on, on this, Phil. Um, how do you feel OCTA fits in the overall imaging picture with some of these drawbacks and how do you get around these? Well, Cindy, I think of OCT and geography in two different realms. We have the clinical realm and we have the research realm. And the research realm is an exciting area, but I think we need to talk, focus more on what the clinician uh, benefits from using this technology. And I've kind of evolved in my thinking of OCTA. I used to think of it 
as purely an angiographic tool. But now I think of it as one-stop shopping because retina specialists need to appreciate that an OCT angiographic scan combines both structural information and angiographic information. And I love the structural information that we can extract uh, like we would routinely in clinic because many of the scans are repeated once, twice, three times, sometimes four times, and the image quality is excellent. So just for a structural assessment of a patient, I use OCTA scans. And for angiographic assessment, gosh, I do mostly macular degeneration. I can't remember the last time I performed a fluorescing or an ICG angiographic um, dye-based image on a patient with a macular disease or even a retinal vascular disease. And that's where wide fields, web source, and spectral domain OCT angiographic imaging is so valuable. So I tend to think of them as a single imaging modality in which we can extract multimodal images. And you may not necessarily look at the angiographic component right away, but I often perform it and bank it and then go back and look at it at a later date. Right. So, so Phil talked about uh, AMD Voss. So it seems that that's sort of where uh, OCTA is getting, giving us more mileage. Um, are there specific patients where you never get an OCTA or always get an OCTA? And where do you think it really changes your management in AMD? Yeah, thanks very much, Imani. So I probably never get an OCTA for a patient with a PVD, but I feel like just about everybody else could benefit uh, from OCT angiography, like Phil said, although, you know, there are specific patients that we may, you know, um, intend to get it every time. Uh, and I think Phil did a really nice job of separating this into, you know, research applications and clinical applications. I think the research applications, as Phil said, are incredibly exciting. But this really is a clinical tool now, I, I believe. Uh, and uh, Phil highlighted AMD, as you said. Uh, but it, it, I think it extends to more than AMD. Any any patient for which who for whom I'm suspicious that they may have macular vascularization, you know, not just high risk drusen and uh, and uh, pigmental attachments and double layer signs in AMD, but also in other diseases, myopia, pachycoid spectrum disorders. Uh, in some of those conditions, dye-based angiography is challenging to interpret, and I think OCT angiography has really been transformative there. We also use it uh, routinely for patients with retinal vascular diseases, such as diabetic retinopathy, to assess macular perfusion, clearly better than fluorescein angiography, uh, fluorescein angiography excuse me, for looking for macular ischemia. Uh, and so, uh, so I think uh, that, you know, I, I don't get a fluorescent angiogram for macular ischemia, uh, for example, anymore. Uh, and also, I think it's a great tool for identifying and monitoring neovascularization. I think Phil and others have shown that you can distinguish IRMA from areas of flat neovascularization. I think that that is very useful, but also in the context of anti-vegetative therapy, especially now that we can do these sort of montage OCTA scans, you can monitor for uh, the, new, the response of the neovascularization to treatment. Another condition which, you know, is, is really where OCT angiography we obtain routinely are patients with suspected MACTEL. 
uh, for example, uh, I think that uh, I think that uh, you you know between structural OCT and the OCT angiogram, and as Phil said, they are sort of uh, come together, come for free, if you will. Uh, you know, it's really all you need, I think, to make the diagnosis of MACTEL. And finally, we use this routinely in inflammatory diseases as well. Uh, and I think you've done a lot of work in that area, Mani. Uh, also, uh, and for, for example, in placoid chorioretinopathies and uh, and the like, we see significant choriocapillaris abnormalities, and we've used that actually in their management, because oftentimes you'll see in some of the conditions, at least, recovery of the choriocapillaris uh, during the, the treatment phase, at least to some extent. So, so I think it's just kind of a small list. Um, uh, and, uh, and actually, I, I will say also in one of our offices, like Phil, just about everybody gets one, as I said, except for those PVD patients, uh, we get it because I don't know later on if uh, I might um, find that to be useful. So just since you can get it at the same time as a structural OCT, it fits nicely into the workflow. So, Voss, your list, um, though small, was large. <laughs> and I'm going to um, ask this across all the panel, but to Nadia first. So if we look at geographic atrophy, a hot topic for um, treatments that are coming through at this point, um, and there's been some controversy about whether um, geographic atrophy growth is affected by um, non-exudative uh, macular neovascularization. Um, and differences um, perhaps by systems or by groups who've been evaluating this. Do you use OCTA in geographic atrophy? So I think that um, in any patient with dry MD, I mean, I think as uh, you know, Phil described uh, this condition on OCTA, macular neovascularization that's non-exudative and that doesn't necessarily have fluid. You know, and we've known this for a while, these patients will show up on OCT as having low-lying pigment epithelial detachments. Um, you know, it was really with OCTA that we could visualize the kind of network of vasculature that underlies these low-lying pigment epithelial detachments. And I think these are a very important fe uh, feature uh, within patients who phenotypically appear dry because they are at a much higher risk um, of developing exudation. So I, I do, uh, you know, when I'm seeing my dry MD patients, I actually do like to do um, an OCTA scan on them. Um, I think that, um, you know, generally, if you look at OCTs, it can sometimes, especially in geographic atrophy patients who have basal laminar deposits, and it can sometimes be hard to tell if they have these macular neovascularizations at the margins of the lesions. And so for me, it's useful to be able to get an OCTA and actually look to see if there's neovascularization there, because it tells me about how frequently I need to follow these patients up as well. Um, it helps me assess the choriocapillaris, especially if I'm using a swept source device. It gives me an idea of how aged the choriocapillaris is. And I think as we start using these newer anti-complement therapies in clinic, this will become even more important because we're all aware some of these have been associated with a risk, a higher risk of exudation. Um, and there's really a question of whether, you know, this higher risk may be even more in patients who have pre-existing non-exudative lesions. Um, and in fact, whether these lesions may be the ones that start executing with, um, you know, anti-complement therapies. So um, I think as we start using or integrating these therapies into our clinics, we are going to need to do OCD and geography to monitor these patients, to look for these lesions, to look to see these lesions are growing and eventually, um, uh, you know, to, to look for exudation more carefully uh, in these patients over time. Thanks, Nadia. I'd love to give Phil and then Boss a chance to also comment on this hot topic. I find I obtain OCT angiography on all my macular degeneration patients. And we had a busy clinic today and we sit down with the fellows 
And you can really see everything, as I've mentioned previously, using both the structural and the angiographic information. You can follow the Jews and the vol volumes as they change. You can identify the pigmentation. You can identify the calcified Jusen. But what I love doing the most is looking at the on-foss images of OCT scans. And you can see not only the presence of the pigment and the calcified Jusen, but you can identify a term that we've coined called uh, persistent hypertransmission defects, or these bright areas using a sub-RP slab. You can see where the light's beginning to penetrate through the attenuated absent RPE. And to me, I use that as an indication of macular atrophy. I don't want to use the term geographic atrophy because that's a color fundus image diagnosis, but I basically use the growth of the hypertransmission defect as indicative of macular atrophy. And that's how I'm going to be following patients with these complement inhibitors. And as Nadia mentioned, using the same scan pattern in a different slab, you're just slicing and dicing the information differently. You can then look along the edges and you can see, uh, as, as Voss coined, a thin double layer sign or basal laminar deposits around the atrophy. And that's a good indication that the lesion is going to grow Quickly, you can look at a slab above the RP and you can see the reticular pseudodrusin. And then, as Nadia mentioned, you can look at the choriocapillaris slab and see how many flow deficits um, can be found around the lesion. And if you find macular neovascularization, I really make the distinction between macular atrophy that's adjacent to neovascularization versus macular atrophy that forms within the macular neovascularization, because I, I interpret the, 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 the prognosis of these cases a little differently, because when the atrophy forms within the neovascular lesion, they tend to grow really slowly. But when they're adjacent to the neovascular lesion, and we published this with Nadia and Eric Molt, they tend to grow just as quickly as other atrophic lesions. So, Phil, I'll play the devil's advocate. So um, every time we present data using OCTA, the clinicians in the audience usually come up and say, how much time is it going to take for me to extract all the information? You just told us you play around with the segmentation and you slice and dice. But for a busy clinician, you know, running through a 90 patient private practice clinic, how how much time are they going to need and how much sort of in-depth information about the tool are they going to need to get the same level of detail that you are getting? Amani, you bring up an excellent point. You could spend a lot of time slicing and dicing these scans, but in clinic, you just really need the basic information. I think you need a retinal thickness map. You need to take a look at the, what I call the sub-RPE slab to see the areas of atrophy. And I really separate the analysis into two immediate stages. Is there atrophy? Is there exudation? And then everything else can be analyzed later. But for the immediate uh, management of the patient, that's what we need to know. Great. Vas, do you have anything else to Sort of add. Uh, no, I think I think Phil and Nadia covered it. I think that uh, that you know I think the most critical um, application for most clinicians is going to be uh, you know identifying uh, patients who may be at high risk uh, 
for development of knee vascularization and then to, to, to identify the knee vascularization because certainly these double layer signs, the thicker they are, the more layers they have between the RP and, RP and Brooks membrane, the more likely they are to be vascularized. But the beauty of OCT angiography is you know for sure uh, because you can see the, the vasculature. And obviously if you're gonna be treating a patient with an anti-complement inhibitor who already has an area of, of, of a non-exudative knee vascularization, it's a good, good discussion point for that patient. And you need to perhaps monitor such a patient more frequently for the development of conversion to exudation. And so I think that's gonna be the key application. And I, of course, you know, uh, I, I have a, a lot of research interest in the Cori capillaris, so I do believe that's an important uh, aspect, but I think for most clinicians, you know, it's probably not quite ready for prime time, but I think it will be. I think we'll be able to, uh, you know, in the not too distant future, use this as a prognostic tool for identifying fast progressing patients. So I do see value there as well. So, so I think the biggest question that we always face is, is what about the artifact and how do you deal with them? And, you know, some of my colleagues use an OCTA and they're absolutely sure this patient has macular neovascularization, but because the signal strength is weak or the patient has a cataract, they can't find that neovascularization and they just throw the baby with the bath water and they say this tool is it's never going to make it. I, I'd rather get my fluorescein angiogram. So what do you have to, what do you all have to tell our clinician colleagues who are just getting into OCTA, what do you tell them? How do they deal with these issues? How do they sort of uh, find the right patient, find the lesion when, when things don't look like they expect? So, so I think there are a few pieces that are critical to kind of integrating OCTA into a clinic that doesn't have experience with it before, or maybe is just starting to use OCTA in geography. I think uh, one, of the, one of the really critical pieces is having well-trained photographers. Um, I, I think that um, OCTA, there's a very steep learning curve to OCTA and geography, and it, that piece is not physician dependent. A lot of that is, is photographer dependent. And, and I also feel that it is actually very dependent on acquisition and having skilled acquisition just from the perspective of people who are looking at things and, and know um, how to acquire good images, because it does take a little bit longer than your standard OCT, and standard OCTs tend to be very forgiving of, um, of operators. So I think that that is, um, is one part of it. I think the second part is also to some extent choosing the right patients. Although I do think the more I use OCTs, uh, OCTAs and the better the technology gets um, and the better the softwares and the tracking gets, the easier it is to kind of apply, apply this to a broader swath of patients. And then, um, you know, I think the third piece that's critical about OCT and geographies, and I, and I think Phil uh, and Voss were referring to this a little bit, is that the structural information always comes cross-registered with the, with the vascular information. And for me, perhaps the most useful uh, scans to look at are to look at the structural B scans with a flow overlay, because then you can do the structure function correlation, right? And so if you're seeing an area that has no pigment epithelial detachment, no fluid, um, and, and you think that there's something there and that it might be neovascularization, uh, if you correlate the structure of the function, you should be able to tell that, oh, you know what, this is just projection artifact from overlying blood vessels, versus if you're seeing an area that has a nice juicy pigment epithelial detachment, and then you see the flow, you can be much more confident if you do that, uh, that correlation. So I think for me, it's just as we were saying, this is, you know, uh, um, it's not a multimodal imaging modality, it's a unimodal imaging modality, really, but that that actually does give you uh, that those multiple uh, different modes of visualizing it. I, you know, I don't know whether you call it multimodal or, or multi-visualization or what do you want to call it, but 
you know, it is an angiogram. It is a structural image. It is also an ANFAS image, very similar to what you would get in a, in a photograph or a fundus autofluorescence, depending on where you segment. And you're able to get all of this information out from just that one single scan. So a lot of bang for the buck and, you know, a lot of information for the amount of time that you spend there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the the cross-section with flow overlay is the sort of the most useful scan that you can have because you can rule out the artifacts. You can really see where that flow is happening. And if it's in the wrong location for your disease, you know that this is most potentially an artifact. And I think it's underutilized and we can't emphasize the importance of that of that information enough, I think, in, in any disease. Amani, yeah, I, I wanted to acknowledge that artifacts are an issue, but it's very rare that they that that they prevent you from interpreting the data, as Nadia mentioned. And any situation where there's an artifact in OCTA, those tend to be the more difficult cases. And dye-based angiography isn't going to provide you any with any greater information. When I'm, the type of case that I'm thinking of routinely that can be ambiguous or patients with large pigment epithelial detachments and type one macular neovascularization. And sometimes spectral domain swept source, you really can't see the lesion well, but these are the same types of lesions that fluorescein and ICGA would be ambiguous on as well. So I think the more people use OCT angiography, they'll get more comfortable with processing the images. And it is a hands-on experience, other than looking at the traditional uh, B-scan cuts and AMFAS images. If you really want to extract and learn as much as possible, these more difficult cases do take time. I mean, I, I would say the worst, the worst offender is patients where the signal strength is very low. And then you start to see a whole lot of artifacts and people are unfortunately misinterpreting them as flow in the wrong places. And, and so I usually teach my fellows that if the signal strength is below a certain level, you can totally ignore that, that scan because it's full of artifact and just don't try to extract information that isn't there. You bring up an excellent point. And I always teach my fellows, always you look at the flow, but you also have to look at the structure image identically, particularly the on-fos image. And if you don't have a good structure image, you're never going to be able to extract the useful flow image. So they go together. Whether you're looking at on-fos or B-scans, always look at the structure and the flow together. Crucial. And a segmentation error can suddenly put vascularization somewhere there where you do not expect it. So we've, we've told people about a lot of things that they need to do to evaluate OCT angiography. And perhaps each of you can provide our listeners with a pearl advice for those who are starting to use OCTA routinely. We think about the era of learning how to read fluorescein angiograms and then learning how to read structural OCTs. So now we're looking at OCT angiography. So Vaz, could you start us out on some ideas of particularly for the person starting out. Um, Nadia led into some of this, but what, what type of patients is Nadia hinting at that would be some to choose for your first ones? 
Well, I, th I think that uh, that uh, in terms of just getting started, uh, clearly choosing patients with clear media, uh, maybe patients with good vision and good fixation might give you a positive experience because certainly patients with substantial media opacity who aren't able to fixate, you're just asking for problems with uh, signal attenuation and uh, and uh, and uh, motion related artifact and the like. So so I think that it's, it is good to get off to, a, to a, a good start so you don't feel frustrated. Amani gave the example of someone who wants to just toss the baby out with the bathwater because they got frustrated. And I, and I have certainly seen that. I've seen people get frustrated saying, I can't make heads or tails out of this. So I do think that you're, Cindy, you make an excellent point as you're getting started, getting your feet wet with it, try to have your photographer choose uh, patients that, that meet those kinds of criteria. I think the most critical thing, and I think both Phil and Nadia uh, really hinted at, or really actually not just hinted, but really um, uh, dived into this, which is that yes, OCT and geography, clearly an incredibly powerful tool. But uh, it's one of those with, with uh, great power comes great responsibility. And that's the case here because you really have to, uh, you really have to understand the technology in order to use it wisely. Uh, and I think that some, you know, I think with all of our ophthalmic imaging technology, sometimes you do have to get into the weeds a little bit as a responsible clinician to understand how is, the, how is this information actually arriving uh, to me? And that can help you make sense of some of the the limitations and, and pitfalls, because I think that's the critical thing. You have to be cognizant of this. Phil gave a great tip and advice, something I do, which is to do this sort of four-up kind of image where you're looking at the ONFOS OCTA along with its companion structural image. And similarly with the similarly with the B scan, with the flow overlay and the, the B scan without, with the, with the structural B scan. And looking at it that way, I think can help you more readily recognize various problems. You need to be able to reliably detect problems such as motion, when you see those kind of uh, linear lines and say, okay, well, you know, that that scan had a problem in this area. I need to be wary maybe of what I, what I see. And similarly, similarly, when things disappear in and out of the ONFOS uh, image, you might uh, be especially concerned about segmentation artifact. We got used to looking for segmentation artifact in OCT thickness maps, right? Well, we can apply those same lessons to OCT angiography, recognizing uh, that this can occur. And, and all of you highlighted how looking at the flow on the B scan can be very helpful in making sure you're ascribing the flow to the right, the location. And finally, of course, you know, uh, again, this is where understanding the technology is important uh, and recognizing projection artifact, right? So all of these these devices, they come with projection removal software, but I'm sorry to say it's not perfect, but because nothing in imaging is ever perfect. Uh, and you need to be uh, recognizing that. And, and that's where the, Phil's example of using the structural OCT is very helpful because the more hyperflective their uh, structure is or an object is on the structural OCT, the more likely it's to manifest projection artifact uh, from an overlying uh, vascular structure. So, so those are all things that I think can help you become a better interpreter. Uh, and, and I think it is, it is an acquired skill, but I guess, I guess maybe the message that I would leave with uh, people um, uh, listening or reading, reading this is, is that uh, it's worth it. It's actually worth the investment of time to become a, a skilled interpreter uh, for OCT and geography. Um, so I, I would say, um, you know, as, as you're starting out, one, some of the really interesting cases to look at um, are um, either patients who have 
um, you know, conditions like central serous, where your central serous choroidopathy, or, you know, along the pachychoroid spectrum, where you're wondering if this is just, you know, if this is truly neovascularization, or, um, you know, if whether this is, um, uh, you know, whether this is just leakage, right, whether this is just fluid, uh, in the absence of neovascularization. And, and I always find it's very gratifying, uh, to look at these patients on OCT and geography. Previously, I used to struggle with fluorescein. I'm not nearly as good a fluorescein interpreter as, you know, Voss and Phil are. So I would look and I just scratch my head and be like, you know what, is is this neovascularization or is this just leakage from like a hotspot or, you know, uh, just leakage uh, past small uh, RPE punctures. And with OCT and geography, it's very gratifying because you can tell right away whether there's neovascularization over there or not. So that always gives me positive reinforcement. Um, and those are the easy ones to interpret as well because they don't have large amounts of subretinal hemorrhage, uh, and it's it's nice and easy to see um, into those into those areas. Um, I also find it really useful to image patients with retinal vascular disease, and and I think maybe we didn't talk about that as much, uh, but I think looking at diabetic patients, and especially if you have the ability to do wider fields of OCT angiography, looking for areas of peripheral ischemia can help you risk stratify these patients. Uh, looking at patients with branch retinal vein occlusions can give you a good idea of how ischemic the retina is um, and can help you think forward. And I, I think, you know, as Phil was saying about AMD, similarly, if you look at VRVO patients um, and they have macular edema and you look at the level of ischemia, it can give you a good idea of how responsive these patients will be to anti-VEGF therapy, for example, and can help you prognosticate these patients. Um, and, and similarly for patients, diabetics with macular ischemia, can help you give an idea of what kind of vision these patients will end up having, um, you know, once uh, once you're able to uh, detergest the retina and get it to dry out. Um, so I just also find it really gratifying to use in my retinal vascular disease patients because um, the images are beautiful and they tell a story beyond what you just see uh, with your structural OCT scans. Thanks, Nadia. And Phil? I want to emphasize something that Nadia said earlier, and that is, Having an imaging specialist, a photographer that you trust and is trained and has developed experience on the OCTA instrument is crucial to getting the best possible images. Everyone thinks, oh, I operated a structural OCT. I'm just going to move over to the OCTA scan and it's identical. No, it's not. It, there, there's a learning curve and keeping the retina in focus is crucial and getting a high quality image is essential to being able to interpret them appropriately. And once you get a good imager who can acquire these images, they're worth their weight in gold. They are so valuable because you're gonna get good images time and time again. And one of the features of spending time with OCT and geography, your ability to interpret structural OCT gets much better over time. And you're gonna find once you challenge yourself looking at structural OCTs, you're gonna be able to identify where those neovascular lesions are, the non-exudative neovascular lesions are, where the PCV lesion is located, where the RPE tear arises. I mean, you're just gonna be able to improve your structural OCT interpretations by spending time and looking at the OCT angiographic scan and diabetes too. So it's worth the time up front, And you may find you obtain the OCT angiographic scan, but really the structural OCT component gives you most of the information that you need. Thank you, Phil, Voss, and Nadia for great pearls for our listeners about OCTA today. Amani? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would just kind of try to put it all together for, for in terms of pearls. I think know your OCT machine, OCTA machine, whichever machine you have. I would say get as many OCTAs as, as you can during the day, but sit down at the end of the day with your fellow and then just go through them like Phil and Voss and Nadia and everyone described. You're just going to get more out of it if you do it after hours. If your patients are gone and you're just sitting at the end of the day reviewing cases, discussing the difficult ones, you look at the cross-section, you look at the omphos, you do the four-up, but do it at your leisure, do it after hours, do it with the fellows, have the fellows do it and discuss the cases with you, challenge each other. There's the double layer sign. How many of you think this one has neovascularization within it? And over time, you and your fellows and your colleagues will get better at it. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's the, that's the quote of the day. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, this really has been a fantastic discussion, and I want to thank each and every one of you for sharing your expertise with our listeners. This concludes our episode on the utility of OCTA in the clinic, and please stay tuned for future episodes of New Retina Radio.